Sponsored by A to Z Wineworks. From asparagus to zucchini, there's hardly a food that doesn't pair beautifully with A to Z Wineworks cool climate Oregon wines. A to Z's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay are ridiculously food friendly. For any occasion or any cuisine, A to Z Wine works. Find out why at A to Z Wineworks.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Any member of the Greek life crowd will tell you about the scrutiny they face on campus, and not without good reason. An increasing number of colleges in the United States have, quite understandably, outright banned the organizations. Back in 1984, a world away in Nigeria, fraternities were outlawed for far different reasons. Muhammadu Buhari, who had assumed power through a military coup, made fraternities illegal as campuses were a flashpoint for resistance to his regime. But the ban never took full effect, and as the economy faltered throughout the 80s, fraternities, known as cults in Nigeria, descended into crime. In the September issue of Harper's Magazine, Sean Williams describes how the Black Axe, a fraternity that grew out of an organization founded on pan-African ideals, has been linked to criminal activity in Europe and North America. Some of this transformation has to do with what is called lotto culture in Nigeria. You know, it's it's get rich quick. It's don't turn to the economy, turn to turn to, to Pentecostalism. You know, your your problems can be blamed on on something external. Uh, same with the cults. Uh, they offer a a quick way to escape a very de- uh, difficult system. Yeah, this the kind of allure of snake charmers or um, crime bosses is kind of a similar phenomenon. Uh, and you see, if you go to any major city in Nigeria, huge billboards, you know, uh, video screens of pastors saying, we can help you, we can help you. Um, they're helping themselves, for sure, but I don't know how much they're helping the people. I spoke with Williams about the difficulties of writing about a secretive criminal organization that's diffuse and sometimes impossible to track, as well as the other cultural, political, and economic forces shaping the Black Axe's behavior. I guess I'll start by talking about Muhammadu Buhari, who is, he led a military coup and he was a military dictator from 1983 to 1985, but he's also the current president of Nigeria now, and he is the second ex-military leader to hold that distinction. So could you talk about the political culture in Nigeria? Yeah, so Mohamedou Buhari uh, first came to power in the 80s uh, for a coup, and really his uh, premiership coincided with a huge drop in the economy of the country. And really that time is the inception for a lot of uh, organized crime, a lot of the, the Nigerian diaspora leaves during this time as well. And really, the uh, the economy becomes a lot more desperate. People don't have jobs. Uh, and therefore, a lot of people fall into the kind of things that I was reporting on in this story. So instead of combating this big financial crisis with any kind of meaningful reforms, uh, Buhari kind of turns his attentions to 
discipline in society. So instead of um, helping people really in any kind of meaningful way, he starts making people queue orderly at bus stops and uh, enforcing fines and, and in some cases corporal punishment for coming in late to work. So this really very quickly changes people's views on him, uh, especially students in, in universities at the time. Uh, and that's when the kind of turn from these confraternities into something a lot more um, confrontational and protest-based happens. Uh, and that's those, those early 80s are really where everything starts to change in the country. Mm. And, I mean, everybody is familiar with Nigerian scams, um, except for the people who fall for them, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there are a lot of them. And there yeah. are a lot. I, I was shocked. I mean, I mean, it's like it's 2019. Mm-hmm. These, they're still making so much money. But I guess I I feel like there is um, a conception in the West of like this is some sort of moral failing. And there's not really an understanding of the culture of graft and the expectation that you cannot get things done the proper way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, going back sort of 30 years, that that kind of instills then and then through su- a succession of kind of military coups and and, and kind of shows of, uh, of violence at the top end of Nigerian politics, it kind of infuses this idea that legitimacy is not the way to get wealth or power in the country. And then you get a, a flourishment of the the early forms of the scams that we would recognize as these sort of Nigerian print scams that are still making billions and billions of dollars and the, the spreading of a, a kind of consolidated organized crime enterprise in some diffuse kind of way. There's also within the government, there is sort of this kickback schemes and um, just this expectation that it's like, well, yeah, I'm in this position and, and, and it's complicated how fraud essentially works in different ways and kind of shapes social interactions let's say yeah i mean it's it's kind of a familiar story in many parts of the world but with the the power kind of crystallizes at the top so when everyone's so desperate for a diminishing wealth and kind of less less of everything to go around then the people at the top are going to do whatever they can to keep hold of power so then you get this kind of crystallization of power in which politicians are more like sort of feudal uh, <laughs> lords almost and you know it, you can see it today in Nigeria that, that, that some of those sort of state governors are traveling around in giant convoys and they're they're like renting off entire floors of hotels just to stay in and everyone educates their children abroad many of whom educate them in Britain which is very strange given the given the history uh, and everyone has really forgotten the the tools and the kind of mechanisms to help ordinary Nigerians kind of rise through the ranks and have some kind of social mobility. And I mean, that's really hasn't changed for a while now. Uh, and this lotto culture, as it was described to me a lot, is really where instead of going through, I don't know, inverted commas, regular means to try and get a foothold in society with kind of the lack of jobs and 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 so little money being put into universities and education then people would are more prone to turning to to crime or to to cronyism or you know these things that aren't really doing much for the economy at large and to go to the black acts and the neo black movement 
Can you give a little context about Pan-Africanism, which was uh, this incredible exchange between Black African-American culture and then Africans? Because they give the names of these different Pan-African figures uh, to new recruits. So, like, why is somebody being called Ngugiwa Chiongo, who is like a lovely novelist author, and then also Muammar Gaddafi? Another person is called... (laughs) Like Lord yeah. Muammar Gaddafi, like it was like, how? What is that? What's going on there? I guess hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So <laughs> maybe if they'd known Muammar Gaddafi a bit better as he is known now, then maybe that wouldn't have been a strong name. Okay. But yes. but uh, certainly the very inception of the neo black movement as it began was like in, in nineteen seventy seven, and there was this huge wave of Pan African. And, and kind of black power movements across the region, especially in Nigeria. So at the time, they had a huge festival in Lagos called Festac, uh, which was a, a cultural celebration of African traditional art and music and culture. And Stevie Wonder played there, I think, as well, and went to this sort of purpose-made giant town built on the edge of Lagos. And that coincided with a government policy of uh, so-called Nigerianism. So there was really a celebration and kind of recognition of pan-african culture political movements obviously anti-colonialism and independence movements in full swing across the continent and that was really this kind of inflection point at which the the neo-black movement comes along as this movement to kind of ride on the coattails of, of a movement that's sweeping across the whole of africa instead of making it more of the the cultural leaning movement that a lot of stuff in Nigeria was at the time they took their inspiration from the Black Panthers in the US and sort of sort of more militant more confrontational path and they've gotten into legal trouble and so some of the some of the operations of both the Black Acts and the neo-black movement have come to light before all of that happened what was the official line that these are two different organizations and these aren't really connected. Well, the word I kept hearing all the time was imposters. So (laughs) that would be everyone that I spoke to from the kind of old guard, the old guys who were out there in the trenches fighting the government back in the day. They would say, these guys, these guys are not us. They're imposters. They're a fake movement. And there is certainly some element of people kind of self-christening themselves as as members of the the neo-black movement, the Black Axe. But Largely, it's just a case of the the elders losing control of a movement which was which was a, a kind of NGO, I guess, at the time. I don't believe necessarily that they're in on the crime that happens among the ranks of MBM Black Axe members further down, but the old guys definitely know what's going on. And <laughs> the kind of last few years as people have started reporting on the groups as if not the same then ex- extremely similar they've been on this kind of pr campaign to try and show that okay we know it's going on but we can kind of pull it back from the brink and this is why they've been trying to say that they're trying to register members in a database uh, although this is a bit of a sisyphian task so yeah, yeah. how's that coming uh well <laughs> i called the guy who was who was uh, supposedly implementing the software that was that they were going to use and he said he doesn't know where it's going to be done uh no one really had a sort of time scale or anything so i think it's going to take a little while yet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah i don't know how much you can say about this person but 
Uche Tobias is so fascinating because I looked at his YouTube channel and he has all of these anti-Black Axe videos. And also one of them is like weirdly kind of the black hordes are coming for Europe almost. Like it's a very weird tack to to take. So could you talk about him and like his initial interest in all of this? It's a strange character. Uh, (laughs) I would definitely describe him as the public enemy number one of the movement. Uh, Everyone knows him and his work very well. (laughs) And yeah, like some of his stuff that he writes or he produces slips into some strange rhetoric at times Uh, it's hard to I mean he got into it initially as a financial crimes expert and I think similar to the way that I'd picked up the story he was like well what on earth is this group and why are they making so much money and they're so spread out across the world but no one's really talking about them and yeah just started producing these blog posts uh, some of which kind of mocking some of which slip into this weird sort of right-wing political rhetoric that's yeah. <laughs> quite quite nasty at times. But, uh, I mean, ultimately, the guy has kind of swept a lot of email accounts and got a lot of inside information that is really unprecedented for this group. And they know it, and they and they hate him for it. <laughs> uh, and, and oftentimes, when I was speaking to people, the elders of the, the movement, they would mention him before they even addressed any of my questions. So like, have you been speaking to Uche? And I was like, well, yeah. And they're like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's against the group. I'm like, well, he's definitely against you, but yes. uh, he, he, he's got he's he's got the means to back it up. And more about these investigations, uh, you know, some of this has come from stuff from the police in Canada and some stuff from the police in Italy. I guess, what else did you learn about this international network? Is it only in places where there is kind of like a Nigerian diaspora or they can just sort of go in wherever and start start it up? Pretty much. Um, There's kind of little sporadic bits and pieces happening all over. So there was like a big crime recently. There was a big fraud case in London. There's been a couple of little smaller cases in Germany, I think, as well. But largely... I mean, one of the biggest things that I learned while researching was that the U.S. has been incredibly slow to pick up on this. Um, and having spoken to a few people that would speak to me about this, they basically said it's a kind of perfect storm of the group being so diffuse, agencies not speaking to each other because these frauds and crimes kind of cross a lot of legal boundaries, I guess, so that they're harder to kind of pinpoint for law enforcement. And also there's a certain degree of racism i think thrown into this i think that the nigerian print scam is seen as a kind of low rent almost dumb kind of crime yeah actually it's a hugely sophisticated and profitable business and in recent years they've been moving into other sort of more sophisticated forms of attacks and and kind of online fraud so this isn't this isn't like you know cops and robbers style silly crimes like this this is a hugely uh, sophisticated machine that's operating and they're operating to move money all over the world from usually into chinese and hong kong banks i mean this is it's it's a big thing yeah i mean obviously u.s is just worried about terrorism this Mm -hmm. is not terrorism (laughs) this is capitalism (laughs) Um, 
one of the people you interview in the story who actually works for Buhari's government says cults like the Black Axe operate as a state within a state, like mobs in the U.S. Exactly, um, yeah. yeah. Did you find that they're sort of like providing services that the state might not do? No, they're not like, uh, they're not on that kind of Pablo Escobar-y kind of level. Okay. Uh, no one's No one's really turning to them and saying they're really helping the community they're more they're more of a way just for young men although some some women do join other groups as well just to try and eke out some kind of an existence they don't really no it doesn't really operate the, the same way as like what we would readily sort of associate with the mafia would do like that it's more of a a kind of a, a gang really that's that's kind of taking the young men from the community and did you get a sense of what the role of women in the organization? Because it is, I mean, there are eyes and then there are enforcers. And yeah, so, like, yeah. what what is it like for a woman in this uh, shadowy organization? Usually not great. Um, there is one cult that I've seen called the Daughters of Jezebel, which mm-hmm. is a, a kind of women's version of the Black Axe, which exists in some parts of Nigeria. But mainly... A lot of cult crime is actually based around, especially in the campuses, based around the kind of the idea of the possession of women. And it would usually be a fight over someone's girlfriend or partner. Uh, and it's it's not the most uh, not the most woke movement <laughs> I think on the planet. Um, there. Yeah. Women are usually seen as a kind of prize of being in the gang rather than uh, kind of integral parts of it. Not nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> you mentioned these other, these other cults that mm. are active. Are those cults as sophisticated as the Black Axe or are they just more worried about like turf war stuff? There's a couple of other cults that have been quite, uh, enterprising and going into other countries like the Vikings I think I mentioned in the story as well was the main rival of John's uh, Black Axe guys there they've popped up in Spain Italy in the drug trade and human trafficking slightly but really the Black Axe is the most definitely the most sophisticated and definitely the most uh, enterprising group out of all of these and it's been able to sort of gain a foothold in the major industries that they operate in, so the, the financial fraud, the human trafficking in Southern Europe as well, that's where they've kind of made their made their name, and they're by far the most sort of prevalent group internationally. Given that they do a lot of their banking in China, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. is there a presence in Southeast Asia? I mean, or in the Pacific Rim? Yeah, there's been some uh, some cases in in Thailand and the Philippines and Malaysia that I've seen. I I couldn't speak too much to that, but there've definitely been some incidents recently where there've been sort of street fights between Nigerian cult members. I think there was one in Indonesia as well quite recently. So yeah, I mean everyone along the step of that way to, towards the sort of far east, the banking side of things. There's there's people stationed in in most countries there. Going back to the tension between the old guys and the young bloods, let's mm-hmm. say, how is that negotiated? I guess like is there any sort of because you know they've 
the older guys have sort of lost control, but how is that tension managed internally? You can't have this elaborate network without your enforcers. Yeah, so there's there's a certain clique of guys right at the top who are like the real old guard, the mm-hmm. the kind of grey beards of the organization. And they're for the most part they're they've got no criminal record. They're they're quite politically active, very well respected members of the community. Uh and then there's kind of a it seems like there's a grey area below that of guys who are kind of a go between between the sort of older, more established part of the the, the movement and the younger guys who might be committing some of the crimes associated with the group so it acts on this sort of three-tiered level so Mm -hmm. there's the official face of the group so Ernest being one of these guys who's like really still has this political zeal and still has this kind of like love for the group as something that he feels can have a real difference and he does believe that 100% now there are people below him that are kind of halfway that inclined uh, Mm. and would have (laughs) kind of gone through the turn of the group in the sort of 90s. Uh, So there would be more of those guys and then below them more still who are kind of being more networking and and kind of branching out into the other sort of more nefarious sides of things. And is John okay? Yeah, um, I suppose him very briefly when the story appeared. He's taking a back seat. He's just kind of living a quiet life at the moment. And yeah, I I think I had used up all my capital with him speaking <laughs> with him for as long as I did because he was, uh, I mean, he's understandably pretty scared about speaking. I mean, yeah. he would certainly be killed if anyone knew that he was the guy speaking to me. So yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to him for spending any time with me at all. And his story is fascinating because it kind of touches on all the different bi- points of the group. You know, the allure of them getting in and and seeing this world that would otherwise be completely shut off to you, this kind of drugs, partying, money, and then from from that to realising, oh, actually, the things that I had really valued in my life, you know, I could lose it all if I carry on with this group, and then struggling and struggling to sort of get further away from the the front side of the group uh, until, yeah, I guess he's found this kind of nice little niche where he can sort of lay low still be a part of the group in name only, but kind mm-hmm. of take a back seat and, and let that pass. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you originally come across this story? Cause it, it, like you said, it is very all over the place, kind of hard to track, but there is some reporting about it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's kind of bits and pieces from different parts of the world. So like the first time that I got interested in the group was, I live in Berlin, Germany. So there was, in 2015, there was a huge wave of migration coming from uh, the Middle East and West Africa. And I didn't really report as much on that as I would have liked to. Uh, and I, I was trying to find a way to report about this this new influx of people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'd seen in various places the name Black Axe come up around that time saying they put down roots in the US or Canada or they're working with the Sicilian Mafia. So then it that became a way of kind of reporting on the 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 migration and something that seemed to be talked about but wasn't really understood. Yeah. Uh, it took a hell of a long time for me <laughs> to understand it as well. But so the more I looked into that, the more interesting they became as this kind of sort of dark force that used this migration to sort of turn a profit and become 
almost like gatekeepers of the the route into into Europe in many senses. And so I went to Palermo, and that's when it all kind of became a lot clearer that they were playing a huge role there. I mean, if you go to the middle of Palermo now, you can't help but see this group. I mean, they're very visible on the streets, and they 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 run a lot of the prostitution, the drug crime that goes on there. So they've kind of come out of nowhere in that part of the world mm -hmm. and to then to try and dig into the, the where this group came from it it becomes a lot more interesting the stuff that hadn't been reported on was all of the political and the cultural past uh, and then it's yeah it's fascinating it's diffuse and yeah. difficult to report on, but it's fascinating yeah and i mean you mentioned that the black acts work with the sicilian mafia not again not the most woke organization mm -hmm. particularly in regards <laughs> to race um so how does that work and are there other instances of black x guys kind of hooking up with the local crime families or what have you so in sicily being the the gentlemen that Sicilian mafia are, they don't yes. dabble in prostitution officially. Oh. So they leave <laughs> they leave this to the guys coming into the country. Mm. Um, obviously, they would never take any money off those guys either, no. uh, but they definitely <laughs> do. And um, so the Nigerian mafia, the, the Black Axe, there acts as uh, they kind of take certain areas in the city for for drugs and prostitution, and then they'll pay a pizzo to the to the Sicilian mafia to use their turf essentially so they're doing what immigrants have done for many years and yes. doing the dirty jobs that the locals don't want to do yeah uh, but are happy to pick up the money for I have in my research read about yeah I mean in in most countries that the black acts are present in they're into interwoven in some senses or at least working with organized criminals in those countries but I never saw anything as kind of clear cut as what happens in in sicily where mm -hmm. it's, it's you can see it with your own eyes so yeah yeah no that particular part of the story is so harrowing because it is it's like the conflagration of all these different factors that you know relate to this giant migration that's happening less mm -hmm. so now than it was before but like it's um yeah it's really sad but then also this is always kind of taken place it's, it's part of human history yeah and i mean like that guess who gets you know the worst deal out of all of this is the women who are coming from nigeria yeah um oftentimes they're sort of taken to a local healer or a traditional uh, witch doctor they're told that they are going to go into prostitution in order to make money in europe and then they're trafficked through the borders by groups like the black axe and then they're kept as sex slaves in cities like Palermo, Turin, uh, other parts of Europe. So they're the they're the people who really get the get the worst deal out of all of this. Um and yeah, when I went to the brothel that's described in the story actually, it's it's pretty awful conditions there as you would imagine. Uh and the women are kept as kept as prisoners, yeah. And given the well, I guess I guess the obvious answer is no. But <laughs> given the diffuse nature of the organization, given the problems in Nigeria with enforcing law and order, what, it, what, it, what have it be, is there a possibility for this to end or at least be reined in in a meaningful way where there isn't so much, you know, sex trafficking stuff? 
Um, or murders. Murders, <laughs> I'm also going to say murders bad. All the bad stuff. <laughs> All yeah. the bad stuff. <laughs> um, unless something happens politically, then, then I would imagine not. And I'd be hesitant to make too much of a strong point being not Nigerian, but mm -hmm. the problem is corruption and the problem is the economy and the stuff that it drives people to do. And yeah, that's not really going away anytime soon. And the country's population is exploding at such a, an incredible rate as well that the country's kind of struggling to, to keep its resources uh, working for the people. So, uh, And obviously Mr. Bahari's in power still yeah. again. And he ran on an anti-corruption ticket this time and it doesn't look like he's been doing much uh, walking to go with the talking. So, yeah. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 